The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. So invite your uh, joyful, reverent, faithful attention to the public reading of God's word here in Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Thus says the Lord. One of the great uh, doctrines of the scripture that uh, the prophet Isaiah brings to us is that uh, God uh, is the creator of uh, all things. And as creator, he is uh, the ultimate and only sovereign. And therefore, he is able to remake the old that is failing and turn it into the new uh, that is eternal. That's one of the great themes of the second uh, part of the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, namely the new creation. And here he promises uh, the remnant uh, a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, to me, it is the ultimate answer uh, to the great problems of life, of death, of sickness, our struggles uh, mentally, physically, families, whatever the case might be. It is the ultimate answer uh, that God promises the new creation to his people. Uh, the context uh, is, as you know, the lament of the prophet. Pro prophet Isaiah has been uh, lamenting that uh, God doesn't seem to uh, care anymore. God seems to be absent. Uh, but of course, those things are not true. It's just simply the emotion of the prophet. Uh, and God here is giving an answer uh, to that lament. Uh, it is also an extended explanation of uh, the final part of uh, Isaiah 65 and verse 16. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from my sight. Again, begins as a transition to form the reality of the promise of a new heaven and new earth, if you will, a new creation as God the great creator. Well, that promise is stated factually in verses 7 to 18. The content is, of course, the key. Specifically, God will create a new heaven, and a new earth. 
so grand in its expanse that all of the events of the physical creation relating to the fall will be forever forgotten. The verb create, I think, is an allusion to that of Genesis 1.1. God created the physical creation in all of its grandeur. But now he's going to act again. He's going to create a new people and a new heaven and a new earth. It's a testimony to his sovereignty and power. Uh, I think quite epidemic today that we have reduced God to something of a Santa Claus. Uh, But again, if he's the creator and he emphatically is the creator, uh, he is the ultimate and only sovereign uh, that can create. And succinctly, he will overturn and remove everything that is wrong and make all things right. The direct object of the creation is a new heaven and new earth. Uh, It's, I think, uh, instinctively uh, true here that the near fulfillment is to Isaiah's countrymen in captivity. They are in Babylon. Because God is the sovereign, he will create them anew and take them out of Babylon and return them uh, to their country. Uh, But it is the far fulfillment that captures our attention in the church and as Christians. And that new creation of the new heaven and new earth uh, comes to us in two phases, uh, with one in the present that is spiritual and the other that is future and, of course, physical. Uh, But let's begin with the present, the spiritual reality of the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. Uh, The present creation, of course, Uh, engages the fullness of the fall of Adam. It is a creation of anger and violence, of lust and envy, of everything, of course, uh, that Adam uh, brings into the world because of the fall. Uh, But God can begin again, and that is what God is going to do. Uh, And this present reality of the new creation engages the spiritual lives of his people based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, We need to remember that the creator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We have that reality in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, of all creation. So that the new creation has its inauguration in the resurrection of Christ. But again, verse 16, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, So Christ is the creator, the sovereign Lord, who creates all things. And he is the creator of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And of course, for us as Christians, the spiritual reality that has begun. Another text that documents this, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, we read in the latter part of the verse that Christ is the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation. So the new heavens and new earth have an inaugurated fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true and the faithful witness. 
again, there comes a reminder uh, that the origin of the new creation is Christ and the power of the new creation is Christ. There are three other allusions in the New Testament to Isaiah chapter 65 that speak to the reality that the new creation has begun spiritually. Now, first we have Ephesians chapter 2 uh, in verse 10, where again, I think the Apostle Paul is alluding uh, to the theology of the new creation uh, in Isaiah chapter 65. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Now notice what follows. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has long before ordained that we should walk in it. That Christ is the creator. Uh, we are his workmanship. If you are a Christian by virtue of the power of the new birth, it's because Christ created you. And he created you purposefully for good works, uh, to magnify and to glorify his name. The concept here, uh, remind people often, is that of cause and effect. But the cause is the new birth. The effect, of course, is good works. The good works are not salvific. They are simply evidence of the power of our creator. Uh, secondly, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision anything but a new creation. Again, the Apostle Paul is alluding to Isaiah chapter 65 that a new creation has begun in Christ. And all of the hallmarks of the old order are to be set aside. The old covenant has been terminated because of the new creation. What are some of the hallmarks of the old order? Well, circumcision, food laws, days and feasts, and so forth. Constituent part of the old covenant was a physical circumcision. That right is gone, replaced by Christ as creator. Furthermore, we learn from the book of Galatians that there are no longer ethnic distinctions in the church today. I'm always mindful that seemingly we continue to fight this battle in our culture, uh, trying to erase ethnic distinctions. It's a worthy goal. I'm not against it. There's a place for that, of course. But the only true place where it can actually occur where it can actually achieve the fullness of realities in the church of Jesus Christ. Because there's no longer Jew and Gentile. Simply the new creation, which is Christ. Uh, in the old covenant, there were ethnic distinctions. Those are no longer a part of the life of the church because Christ has created the church absent those ethnic distinctions and the power of the Creator that one of the things ought to be manifestly true in the church, that we no longer give attention to the struggles uh, that we see in our culture over ethnic realities. The church is one. Christ created it one. We all are the same. 
The third allusion is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Again, the Apostle Paul bringing Isaiah chapter 65 uh, into his argument. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Uh, it's very interesting that the context uh, of which the apostle is writing is that the church is considering cashiering him uh, for new teachers. Paul's argument is that the new creation by which we are reconciled to God uh, means that we therefore should be reconciled to the apostles and their truths. Uh, it's a reminder, again, of how important theology is in the life of the church, based upon Christ as the sovereign creator. Uh, there's a constituent part in the life of the church that is vertical, uh, because God has created us new. Then there's the new reality of horizontal relationships that should engage us as parts of the new creation that uh, in the life of the church, there's no longer old rivalries, jealousies, hatred, anger, envy. That the Hatfields and McCoys do not live in the life of the church any longer because of the new creation. Uh, recently finished, or uh, about to finish, a uh, biography on uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, uh, I've read in a, a number of previous biographies that uh, when Edwards was fired by his uh, church, uh, he subsequently went to uh, Stockbridge to engage in a ministry to the Indians, and it was a much more peaceful time for him, uh, enabling him uh, to write. Uh, but in this new biography, I've learned that that's not true at all. He goes to Stockbridge to minister to the Indians, and what does he find? Uh, jealousy, pride, not so much with the Indians, uh, but with uh, the citizens of Stockbridge who wanted to use and abuse and take advantage uh, and make money off of the ministry to the Indians. What's wrong with that? That's the old order. That's the old creation. Christ is the creator. These things should not be so. And of course, they should not be so uh, in our church. And everything about the ministry to the Indians in Stockbridge all unraveled, because that's a way of man. But that's the way of the old creation, and we learn Christ anew in the new creation. We should learn to set aside envy and jealousy and anger and hatred. Uh, the old way of life is, uh, is gone. That's the distinction that the Apostle Paul brings to us in Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh are. And then the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. These are the things that should rule our lives because they are the evidence that the new creation has begun. Many applications to this. I'll give you one from my own life. We all get angry. I certainly get angry on occasion because of certain events. And whenever I get angry and flash in anger, I have to stop and think, Bill, that's, that's the old creation. 
Uh, the new creation is forbearance and patience and love. I understand it's a continuing battle, but what catches me is what? The theology of Jesus Christ as the creator of the church. And I do not want to deny the evidence of his creation in my life. We need to learn this in the church as the people of God, not to bring the old into the new because Christ is the creator. That theology, the truth of Christ as the creator, embraces practical realities, and therefore we should discard the old and not enter back into it because Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And our resurrection is tied to him. And the new should be embraced. It's a powerful reminder of the simplicity of the gospel, that Christ saves, our, saves us from our sins and he makes us new. How can he do that? He's the sovereign creator. How can he take envy and jealousy and anger and the desire to abuse people because he's a creator. He comes to the heart and he makes it new. And that, that is what he does in the gospel. That Christ saves. He saves us from the old. How can he do that? He's the sovereign creator. He makes us new. How can he do that? He's the sovereign creator. It's a reminder that the gospel changes our lives. And Christ creates it and makes it so. It's a practical reality that we are different than the world with all of its rivalries, its quest for power, its lust for wealth. Uh, and if anything gets in the way of that, so be it. Uh, should not be a controlling influence on in our life if present at all because Christ has made us new. Well, that's the present reality of the spiritual creation. We turn now to the uh, second phase of the new heavens and the new earth uh, that is future and uh, final uh, will come uh, into the completeness of the reality of Christ as creator in a new heavens and new earth. Again, by review, it has started spiritually in our hearts and the life of the church, uh, but it has not yet reached its terminal fulfillment in the fullness of the reality of the new heavens and new earth. That is phase two, and it awaits the second coming of Jesus Christ. The new creation is present, but its completion is yet future. And again, we know this, from the authors of the New Testament who allude to Isaiah chapter 65, a couple of places. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13 speak to phase 2 of the new heaven and new earth. Second Peter chapter 2, chapter 3, pardon me, chapter 3 and the 13th verse. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's speaking of that which is yet future. More prominent place, as you know, because we've looked at this text often, uh, Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read three verses 
from this chapter of the Apostle John. And I saw, Revelation 21.1, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Let's skip down to verses 4 and 5. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The words of Christ. He creates the spiritual reality, the new heavens and new earth in our hearts, and he will replace the old creation with the fullness of the new creation, the sovereign creator in the new heavens and new earth when he comes again. One has begun, but the other is yet future. But you will only come into the possession to the greatness of the future reality if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If you're not a Christian, you, know, you will not experience this in any manner or form whatsoever. The door to the future reality of Jesus Christ making all things new is his work upon the cross. And I trust your hope is in him and him alone. The blessings of phase one are new life and spiritual renewal. The blessings of phase two are total and irreversible eradication of the curse. And that is the subject matter of Isaiah chapter 65, verses 19, 25. Some of the greatest promises of all of the scripture found in this text. Certainly, the promises are some of the greatest and the grandest of all of scripture. Uh, because Christ will come again and make this old order of this physical creation totally new by his power as the sovereign creator. Uh, the first effect of the final work of the new creation, the physical reality, verse 19, is all sorrow is vacated. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Weeping and crying are the effects of the fall of Adam. We suffer pain. Our hearts break because of the fall of Adam. But God in Christ as the new creator will come and for his church end all of that and totally reverse the effects of the curse. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any crying or hearts full of sorrow because he will make all things new. It's a great promise. It's a great promise. Even as Christians, we experience this, do we not? We bury our sons and daughters sometimes. We bury our parents. We meet with colleagues who have suffered uh, incredible tragedy in their lives. But the church of Jesus Christ, that will no longer be when Christ comes again. The second, verse 20, is eternal life. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. 
for an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. The language here, of course, is profoundly metaphorical. Uh, The theological reality is that uh, infant mortality uh, uh, will end. A life cut short will end. There will be no such things in the new heaven and new earth. The person who's not achieved a centennial of life, Isaiah says, will have missed a mark. Look at the, the last uh, word in verse 20. New American Standard reads, accursed. Uh, the word is literally to sin, to miss the mark. Uh, we will not miss the mark because Christ, our Creator, will end death. We will no longer know mortality. There will be no longer be any sickness or pain. All will be made new. None of God's people will miss that mark in the joy of eternal life, world without end, because of our sovereign creator. that our fallen uh, lives that break, that grow old, that fade with time, uh, a face that is once uh, beautiful will be totally eroded someday in a death mask, but God will change all of that in Jesus Christ. The physical reality of glory that he will impart to his church. Therefore, the effects of time that were so constituent a part of the old creation are negated and totally reversed. I'm I'm quite mindful that one of the blessings of the physical creation is that we have gifted physicians and scientists that sometimes discover cures. God bless them. Thank God for those saints. We will not need them in the new creation. God does not have to go out and uh, hire a thousand physicians to come up with a cure. He will simply speak it so in his sovereign power. Thirdly, verses 21 to 23, this change is made irreversible and immutable. The entropy of the old order is stopped and our glorified bodies will be fixed in permanence and incorruptibility. Notice the text. Uh, and they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. If you think about it in terms of the Babylonian invasion, a farmer goes out to his field and he tends his vineyard, but uh, the armies of Babylon come and take it over. And he cannot and does not enjoy the fruit of his labors. A man builds a house and hires carpenters and yet the invasion incurs and his house is taken away from him forever. That will not occur in the new creation. Every enemy of the church will be vanquished and will no longer enter the new creation, the power of God. Again, the uh, metaphorical language is quite pronounced, but but think about it. A man lives his entire life and 
uh, comes to the end and defines perhaps a new discovery. But because of death, he doesn't see what that discovery will produce or the effects that it will bring. Not so in the new creation because there will no longer be any death. The vanity of life in building and planting for another to enjoy ends. I sometimes wonder today for those uh, very smart and intelligent businessmen who establish foundations to propagate some cause, if they could come back today and see how the monies of those foundations were being used, I think they would be full of anger. But that's the way it is. A man leaves a pot of money for a certain cause and someone else takes it over and totally abuses it in a way totally contrary to the man who starts the foundation or the woman who leaves the deposit of wealth. That will no longer occur in the old creation. There will be no such things. Entropy is vanquished forever. And there's no longer corruption, only incorruptibility. Isaiah is using, again, the language of his day and time to describe that change is obviated for we will be made perfect. And perfection no longer experiences change. Uh, one of the things that perhaps uh, all of us, notwithstanding uh, uh, the young children and infants uh, that are present, uh, come to realize that with each passing day, uh, things in our bodies begin to break and change occurs. Uh, I have this picture in my, in my bedroom uh, mirror that I use of my high school picture. It's a reminder that I am a fallen creature. And what I used to look like in days gone by is no longer the same today. But when Christ is the creator, makes us perfect, there will no longer be any change. We will have reached the terminal point of everlasting glory. You almost, in a way, feel sorry for people who are radically and totally given almost in a religious way uh, to finding the new potion, if you will, to erase uh, the effects of time on their face or their foreheads. Now, we will no longer need it. We will no longer go to the drugstore to find whatever cure there is because God will make everything new. Our creaky joints to use but one example. The greatness of Jesus Christ, the creator of the new creation, begun in our hearts, but one day we will achieve the terminal point in everlasting glory. Again, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. Neither has I seen a God besides thee who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. I have to remind myself that of often. Sometimes we get discouraged, we get beat up, things happen, families break. Uh, but Isaiah is telling us, you have no idea the grandeur of what it will be like. I have yet to see the grandeur of the new creation. Ear has yet to hear of it. But it will when Christ visibly comes again and visib visibly turns this world inside out. 
in the fullness of everlasting glory. Very interesting in the text, if you look at Isaiah chapter 65, and verse 22, and my chosen ones, uh, pardon me, the, the previous phrase, for as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. You know, the great redwoods of uh, California, alive for centuries. That's chump change for those who enter the new creation because of Christ as their creator. It's interesting that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, changes the word tree to the tree of life. We will again live forever. Next, in verse 24, the end for which we were created as sons uh, will be achieved. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Uh, this text is documenting the reality that our every need of the new creation will be met. I'll remind you of uh, David, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There will no longer be want in heaven. Another translation uh, translates it this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. In heaven, that will achieve the fullness of reality. We will not sit around wanting for things, dreaming about things. We will have everything in the provision the majesty of the greatness of God. Furthermore, we will not even have to ask. The divine answer is eternally present in every provision. Now, that is the point of the text. I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The text illustrates the finality of the filial love of God the Father to God the Son. One of the things that's remarkable to me about the life of Jesus Christ in his earthly sojourn is that every prayer that he made to God the Father was answered by the love of the Father and his love for his eternal Son. But that will become true of us as well. Because the fullness of the love of God the Father for God the eternal Son will now come into our possession. So much so that he will love us and that our every prayer will be answered. In fact, we won't even have to pray because God will answer our every need before it even leaves our tongues. The greatness of God, the love of God for his sons. Always reminded that love comes into the life of the church and the spiritual reality of the new creation. The fruit of the Spirit is love. but in the fullness and the intensity of the love of God for his son, Jesus Christ, will come into the visible reality of the fullness of the new creation. And love, in all of its intensity, will break upon the sons of God. I'm reminded of the chump change of uh, secular songs. What the world needs now is is love, sweet love. 
the world needs now is Jesus Christ, the sovereign, majestic, all-powerful creator who changes hearts and who will change the world in which we live. Now we come into the fullness, meaning that the intensity of God to his son, only begotten, uh, will come and envelop us in the purity of eternal love. purity of divine affection. Lastly, the final uh, physical blessing of the new creation. And again, it's almost an ever-increasing intensity of the effects of, uh, of what Christ will accomplish in the new creation. Uh, it's the blessing of peace. Isaiah 65, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall no longer do evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. One of the goals of the United Nations is world peace. Coming together of humankind. Establish peace upon the earth. I bet there hasn't been a month of world peace in the existence of the United Nations. You know why? Because of the old creation, the heart of man affected by the fall. It's a place of incredible bitterness and anger and envy and the quest for power. God will fix that when Jesus Christ comes and makes this world totally new. That radical change will invade the new creation. In the old creation, there was predation in the animal kingdom and human kingdom with hatred and violence. I'm really stuck by our old uh, culture in which we live. I, I suspect it's always been this way, but this predation of man upon man is something incredibly evil to me. God will end that. How can that be? Christ is created. The new creation will obviate all of this by the power of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I don't know if you caught this or not in the reading of this text, but uh, thematically, conceptually, uh, Isaiah is alluding to this, various rea to this uh, reality in his previous writing in the 11th chapter of this prophecy that bears his name. Isaiah chapter 11. It's a remarkable text because of its context. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put its hand on the viper's den. And again, incredible metaphorical reality that peace the likes of which we have never known will descend upon the physical creation. You and I would be aghast if we, uh, if we heard a parent say to a child, hey, there's a rattlesnake uh, in the backyard, Johnny, go play with it. I mean, we wouldn't do that. We'd be horrified by it. Rattlesnakes are incredibly venomous, incredibly dangerous. Uh, no longer be a worry in the new creation. There will no longer be predation. There will no longer be dangerous spiders. 
the bugs that bug us, if you will. Because the power of God. In the fullness of the reality, the lion will lay down with the lamb. In the old creation, the lion would eat the lamb. Again, it's the reality that every form of hatred and bitterness and anger, all the forces of the tribal realities in our world today will cease because of the power of God in Jesus Christ. This world wants that, I guess. I'm not so sure it just simply doesn't want to use that to gain power. Uh, but in the new creation, the power of God in Jesus Christ will make it so. There will no longer be tribal differences. All will be made new. The reference here to the serpent may very well be an allusion to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. It's one of the greatest stories of all of the Bible. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And the serpent comes and deceives Adam and Eve. And the creation is cast into utter ruin and chaos. That will no longer occur. What Isaiah is telling us here is that there will no longer ever be a reintroduction of another curse into the new creation. There will no longer be a curse. It will be totally wrung out of our lives and our realities by Jesus Christ, our Creator. So I'm very fond of uh, something of the commentary that the Apostle Paul uh, gives to us in the reality. Uh, Romans chapter 8, in the 18th verse, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. That verse is an application of Isaiah 65 and the promise of a new creation. We struggle, our bodies break, we wear out, someday we die. It will not be so. We should remember the glory that awaits us. The world has none of that. It will all be taken away. What little they have, they will lose everything. And what little we seemingly have, we will gain everything. Again, hearken to the words, the glory that awaits us. It is meant in terms of the theological reality to cause us to persevere, to cause us to go the distance and not to give up because of the glory that awaits us. We wait for glory, and we wait not in vain because of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. The words of the Apostle Paul, the second coming, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we shall be changed. Because Christ is our Creator. That eternity has begun in Him. He's given us new hearts and eternity ends in him. And what a beginning it is to have hearts uh, made new and setting aside of anger and violence and envy and strife. But then the terminal reality of it. What an end it will be. The glory that will come 
and meet us and gather us and radically change our bodies and this world forever. May God hasten that day.